0: How does the B song go?
1: What B song? Uh, I'm
0: definitely gonna use that.
1: Anyway, Ready let's
0: start go? let's start the episode. <laughs>
1: everyone. Welcome to One Earth. We are a sustainability podcast. We look at the past, present and future of environmental issues.
0: Like a, an environmentally friendly time machine.
1: Exactly. My name is Sarah and I'm here with our producer Ross. Hello. And today we are going to be looking at the wonderful world of bees. This is
0: like my favourite subject.
1: We, we were very excited about the bee topic. They're so cute. They're adorable. They make honey. They also pollinate everything.
0: But they're also on the decline.
1: Yeah. So that's what we're we're going to try and investigate today to find out why bees are important in the first place, why and if they're on the decline, and what we can do about it. Okay. But first, I'm going to make myself really small, I'm going to shrink myself down, hop on a bee, and travel back in time. (laughs) (laughs) It's getting progressively weirder every episode, my my travels into the past. I love your methods of transport. (laughs) So we are going to go back to 135 million years ago. so this week we're going further back than we've ever gone before back to about 135 million years ago when the continents were just starting to drift apart this time is known as the cretaceous period the world was full of towering green forests and huge dinosaurs still roamed the earth our ancestors at this time were like little ratty creatures and most strangely there were no flowers at all like we know them today pollination has always been really tricky for plants because they can't move they need to get pollen to the female reproductive parts of another plant to reproduce which 135 million years ago was mostly being done by the wind but things were about to change pollen is super nutritious and insects started to eat it to top up their diets so they move pollen from one flower to another flower and to start with these insects had to find scrubby green or brown flowers and then plants started vying with one another for the insects attention. Water lilies evolved which are really bright white flowers you can see really easily on a green backdrop and flowers with really bright colours and intricate patterns started to develop so that the insects would pick them over another flower. The first evidence of there ever being an actual bee, which survived because it's encased in amber, is thought to be 80 million years old. But bees are probably way older, evolving about 130 million years ago. So these guys have been around for a seriously long time. They survived the fallout of the meteor, which wiped out the dinosaurs and most other large animals and helped repopulate the earth with plants. There are about 25,000 species of bee across the world, and until recently, the number of species, totally, on the planet was the highest it had ever been. But at the moment, species are going extinct at somewhere between 100 and 1,000 times the natural rate, largely driven by habitat destruction and the ravages of humans. Bees and insects are no exception, and scientists and activists are becoming increasingly worried about what the consequences of a declining bee population will be. At the moment, bees pollinate one third of the food that we eat, things like broccoli and strawberries and 80% of flowering plants. While there are other methods of pollination, like the wind, bird, bats and other insects, wild bees are the most important pollinators because they can pollinate on a much bigger scale. It's been estimated that it would cost farmers in the UK £1.8 billion a year to manually pollinate their crops, which at the moment is something wild bees do for them. So bees are pretty important. And I've arrived back in the present. Hello. Hello. How was it? Yeah, it was pretty scary, full of dinosaurs. Ooh. Fairly terrifying.
0: What's your favourite dinosaur?
1: My favourite dinosaur is a stegosaurus.
0: Diplodocus, me. Is
1: that, your, is that the big one that swims?
0: I have no idea. It's just a cool word. Use <laughs> a funny
1: name.
0: <laughs> okay, so back to bees
1: back to bees. So I basically want to find out why bees are so important. And I thought the best way to do that would be to go and meet some bees. Let's
0: go speak to some bees. We're going to
1: interview some bees. We're going to interview some people who are studying bees. So we're going to head to Queen Mary's University, where they've got an entire department where they're studying the behaviour of bees, teaching them games and working out how they think. It's pretty wild. This sounds awesome. So we are going to go and speak to one of the professors there to find out a little bit about why bees are so important, what they can do, and how we can help them.
0: To the bees! To the bees!
2: So my name is Professor Lars Chitka. Um, I study the sensory and behavioural ecology of bees and their learning and memory. And we're at Queen Mary University of London in the School of Biological and Chemical Sciences at the moment
1: so i've got my hat on got a big overall on even got some gloves on we are literally surrounded by bees there are bees in a big beehive there are bees in boxes solving puzzles and there are bees genuinely working out in a little bee gymnasium
2: so i think it's important to keep in mind that bees are not just honeybees a honeybee is a domesticated animal and only one of about 20 to thirty thousand species of bees And it's actually the one species that's definitely not under any threat. It's a domesticated animal. It's well looked after by beekeepers. um, And and it has a lobby because, of course, farmers needed to pollinate their crops. What's really at risk at the moment are the many thousands of species that are wild, that are equally important in um, pollinating crops, but that are actually in competition with domesticated honeybees. So the... I guess, well-intentioned move of many companies and private individuals to put lots of honeybees into their gardens to save the bees is actually very counterproductive because it's about the equivalent of releasing lots of domestic chickens into the wilderness to aid wild bird populations. It doesn't do anything. Um, If anything, it does more harm than good. Um, So one of the biggest um, factors that is... Um, affecting wild bee populations is the lack of flowers and um, counterintuitively perhaps in cities because there's so much green space that's actually not spray coated with insecticides there is a big niche for wild pollinators to thrive if they find the right food. So to the extent that you find um and they're now available in any sort of gardening center, seed packs or flowers with seeds for um that that are native and wildflowers and plant these, that's a big help. There are also many companies now sell so-called bee hotels, which are basically wooden blocks with variously sized holes in them in which wild pollinators can nest so providing nesting opportunities is also helpful.
1: Over here we've got a space testing the bees facial recognition. We've also got the bees solving different puzzle boxes and getting rewards. It's like a big playpen for bees.
2: So one of the really nice things about bee conservation is that everyone can actively participate. So with many of the um, animals that are at risk, under threat globally, That people are, that are on people's minds like Siberian tigers and polar bears and so on, you can't personally do much. You can send money to support organisations that in turn support them, but you can't personally get involved with helping them. Whereas with wild pollinator populations, everyone can do their little bit, so long as they have access to any kind of um, flat area on which to plant wild flowers that could be a balcony or a front garden or a back garden Um, but so long as there's any space for such flowers to grow you you're in charge of that space and you can plant something do your bit for the pollinating world
1: thanks so much Lars this place is awesome
0: Oh, my gosh, that was so fascinating.
1: That was amazing. There were literally bees solving puzzle boxes. And,
0: like, who'd have thought that bees can, like, recognise humans?
1: I, I am totally baffled. They're so smart. Seeing inside the hive was amazing as well, seeing how many bees there were.
0: Yeah, and it was fun putting on the, the costumes the, as well. The
1: bee costumes. We well, look
0: great. If you want to check out what me and Sarah look like, head it to our Instagram, which is?
1: Uh, it is Hello Hubbub. Brilliant. That's it.
0: Head over there and check us out. We look very good. We
1: look amazing in bee costumes. I've
0: always wanted to put on one of them.
1: Yeah, it has been a lifelong dream to dress up as a beekeeper and play with some bees, which we've done now.
0: Yeah. Well, (laughs) thank you very much to uh, Professor Lars, who is a very intelligent and lovely man.
1: And I think one of the most interesting things he was talking about was the fact that... It's really easy to do something to help. You don't have to start your own bee colony. You don't have to do anything drastic. Just something really simple like planting flowers or putting up a bee hotel. You're already doing an amazing thing in helping that population recover. So what I want to find out next is a little bit about what the future of biodiversity and particularly the future of those bee populations look like. So we're going to go and speak to an expert.
0: Let's jump on a bee.
3: Hi, I'm Craig Bennett and I'm currently Chief Executive at Friends of the Earth and have been for the last almost five years. In April 2020, I become Chief Executive at the Wildlife Trusts,
1: Which is very exciting. Thank you for coming to speak to us.
3: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: So this episode, we've been talking all about bees. We have found out quite a lot about bees, the past of bees, what bees are doing now, the fact that bees can learn and teach each other stuff. But I'm interested to talk to you a little bit more about the broader context, which is biodiversity, the decline of it and what we can do um so in your experience at friends of the earth what were you trying to do with your campaign there
3: well, it's a very good question because uh, when I actually became Director of Policy and Campaigns at Friends of the Earth in 2010, I'd, I'd be, worked at Friends of the Earth early in my career, I'd been away for a bit, was working at the University of Cambridge, and was Deputy Director of the Institute for Sustainability Leadership there. And then I was tempted back to Friends of the Earth as Director of Policy and Campaigns. And in 2010, it was towards the end of a decade when Friends of the Earth and actually pretty much the whole environmental movement had focused completely on climate change and they were right to do so absolutely right thing to do uh, because we had to ramp that up the agenda but we just had the copenhagen climate conference which had been this massive letdown and a huge disappointment and actually across the wider environmental movement and across activists there was real kind of climate fatigue and the problem was you could see this was harming the, the environmental movement more broadly.
1: It can be a really difficult message to get
3: right. It's a difficult message and we needed to kind of lift the wider movement but also we needed to talk about that broader sustainability agenda and the thing that was really scaring me was that actually the environmental movement was losing touch with what absolutely its first cause should be, really, which is the connection to the natural world. And in Britain, we hadn't had a kind of big campaign around nature for for quite some time at that stage.
1: And can you explain what the problem is exactly? So in terms of declining biodiversity in Britain, what is actually going on?
3: Well, let's start actually at the global level, if we can. I mean... uh, Fundamentally, I think there's a problem that people kind of still think biodiversity and nature is a nice thing to have, Mm -hmm. uh, that it's about cute and cuddlies and all those kind of (laughs) things. Um, Actually, let's be clear, it's fundamental to everything else. It's a foundation to our whole existence. And actually, if we lose, if nature's in decline, if our natural ecosystems and functions and processes aren't working, uh, then the rest is toast anyway. You Mm -hmm. know, we, we should remember that uh the the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of nature not the other way around and yet our politicians normally behave as if nature is a wholly owned subsidiary of the economy and, and we've really got to shift this up the consciousness and, and what we had ju- around 2010 when i came came back to friends the earth as director campaigns you had you'd had the things like the millennium ecosystem assessment in the year 2000 you'd had uh this huge report called the economics of ecosystems and biodiversity mm-hmm. There was lots of research showing that there was a complete crisis globally in the collapse of ecosystems and ecosystem services and the loss of biodiversity and the sixth great extinction and all these kind of things and we needed a campaign that absolutely woke people woke the british public up to that but preferably a campaign that didn't use any of those words I just used.
1: It's scary the sixth, you know, the sixth math extension and all of these. Yeah, the WWF report that came out last year. It would scared people. I don't think people actually knew what to do about it.
3: Yeah, and I think I think I think too often in the conservation movement in this country, the focus has been just around species and rarity, um, which is understandable. But that really comes from that long history of sort of natural history in the UK and sort of old Victorians going mm-hmm. out and collecting thousands of beetles and putting them in a drawer and categorising everything and so on. But actually what we've not been so good at as a, as a movement in this country, conservation movement, is actually uh, talk about ecosystem function and understand how the natural world is connected and the fundamental role that these different species play. I mean one of my favourite examples, I mean early in my career I used to work on bears believe it or not. Bears! Yeah and um I often say to people what's do you have any idea what the ecosystem function is of a bear?
1: I have no idea.
3: I I couldn't tell you. The most important function that bears play is actually seed dispersal. No. Um, um, Cuz they eat they
0: eat um berries, berries and then and then they poop
3: yeah, well, they go and do what bears do in the woods. Exactly. <laughs> and, and and take, imagine, imagine in the Mediterranean, yeah, imagine where there used to be quite a lot of bears, and there aren't anymore, but somewhere like Greece or uh, in the sort of Balkan republics and so on, a, a brown bear there, European brown bear there, it will do one thing that no other species does, which is, uh, imagine if you've got a nice plum tree covered in plums. A bear will spend the night gorging itself on these plums and might eat sort of hundreds of plums and so on. And then, and it's the only species to eat those, because if you think about even if the plums fall, even if like a fox or something eats them, it would nibble around the edges Mm. and so on, but it won't necessarily eat the whole stone. A bear will actually eat hundreds of these things, hundreds of these plums, and go and trot off, it might go and trot off another 50 kilometres away or whatever, and then it would do what bears do in the woods, and then you get a nice stand of plum trees a few years later. and. People just don't realise this. People don't realise that across the whole of nature, you, you know, the, the the impact, the function that certain species have is sometimes quite different from what we would guess or expect.
0: I think it's quite a nice way to look at it, really, isn't it? Like, as you said earlier, it's not all about the cute and cuddly. Mm. It's keep a bear alive because they look nice. It's mm. like, actually, no, bears have a proper function within our ecosystem.
3: So what I really wanted to do is launch a Frenzy Earth campaign on bears we don't have <laughs> bears in britain
1: Maybe, it's a difficult one it's a
3: difficult one um but we did have bees and well we do have bees thank goodness <laughs> so we have bees but bees were in massive decline uh, in 2010 they were really suffering and they're still still not in p- great shape they're better shape now but we thought if we can run a big public campaign around bees they actually become the ambassador for this bigger story because the great thing is one of the first things you learn at primary school is that bees don't just look nice and they're lovely little things most people love them uh, but actually they have this huge role of Mm -hmm. ecosystem function that people get you don't have to explain it and the mark of a good campaign in my experience is that people get it within five seconds And what we found when we were launching the bees campaign, people got it immediately. No one was arguing against us saying, no, we don't need bees. (laughs) And so then, you know, it was just easy from that point forward to say, look, bees are in decline. It's for a whole number of reasons. It's principally habitat loss and appalling agricultural policy, but also far too many chemicals and pesticides being spread on the land. Mm -hmm. And everyone can do something about it. Everyone can get involved and sort of uh, plant bee-friendly plants in their gardens or even window boxes and so on so it was something that everyone could get involved in but it became this symbol for that much bigger story about sort of reawakening the British public to what was happening around biodiversity and I want to be clear it's not as if Friends of Earth were the only people involved in this there were many other organisations and many small organisations that had focused already on bees for a very long time uh, like Bug Life and others.
1: I know you've spoken before about this being the link between the local and the global. So how do you start connecting people and what they do in their gardens to what's happening on a global scale? And do you think that because of this conversation that people are having around bees, we're now understanding more about biodiversity or is yeah. it not quite got there yet?
3: I hope so. I mean, it, it, it's exactly that is what we always try and do at Friends of the Earth. And I, I think Friends of the Earth's unique role is the ability to connect the local, the very local to the, the to the global because Friends of the Earth is part of the world's largest grassroots environmental network with groups in 75 countries around the world. So we always want to tell a global story. But ultimately, you know, if you think that the answers to all this is just these big international agreements and the United Nations and so on, which is all very important, and I'm not going to s- dismiss that, but actually that's very disempowering for people. Actually, if we can find a way that each of us individually can do something, uh, both in our own lives but also, also through our activism and telling our politicians what needs to change and so on, then that's very empowering if you can find a way into these big global problems like climate change or biodiversity loss and so on. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what we always look for in this.
1: And do you think that people's attitudes towards nature is changing and it's no longer categorising things, but we are starting to recognise what you were talking about?
3: Yeah, it is. So, you know, I, over the last nine, uh, nine years, I mean, we ran our B campaign at Frenzy Earth for about, I don't know, seven years, I think. And we had some big successes during that time. We managed to persuade the government to adopt a national pollinator strategy, which was really important. We managed to get a couple of the neonicotinoid pesticides that were so clearly harming bees' banned, and so on. What are they? Neonicotinoid pesticides. <laughs> I wondered if you'd come back to me. I've done a lot of practice in, in learning how to say that so one really, over the years. So, this this whole sort of generation, this whole family of pesticides, which uh, um, have been devastating for bees, but actually, the evidence is for many other species now as well. Um, and that they, uh, they've just caused so many problems. And uh, b- the finger of blame for a lot of the collapse in sort of bee and other populations that I think lays at these. It's important to say it's not just that. I said it's habitat loss as well and actually it's other forms of pesticides and chemicals as well. But there was a very clear evidence of the harm that this family of pesticides in particular was causing. So we, with our campaign, we managed to sort of win those things, which was great, those kind of bits of policy. But I think the real success of the the bee campaign we ran at Friends of the Earth um uh, as is always the same with a with a real a campaign that really makes a difference long term is it shift public opinion and and attitudes and values even about these issues so an example of that is in in twenty ten twenty eleven actually um if you'd sort of gone to um a, a local park in your town or if you 'd gone to i don 't know a university campus and you'd saw grass and so on, nearly always it would be perfectly mowed mm. you know manicured and so on. And now everyone seems to be out competing to who can grow their grass the longest and let it go wild and so on. And, and people sort of understand how to do that. And people celebrate sort of areas that are being left to go wild now. And um, that has just been so important. That's a real shift in kind of public consciousness about what's what's right and what's wrong, if you like literally just eight years ago most people looked at that and thought it was untidy Mm. now people look at it and think oh isn't that brilliant that's nice wildlife habitat there and i think that's probably even more enduring that kind of shift in attitudes than maybe the policy wins we got which are very important as well
1: and what can i do at home if i want to kind of join in with the movement and help protect the bees but also protect wildlife more broadly
3: well, the important thing is just if you've, you've got access to any, any land, if you've got a garden, or even if you've just got a window box, letting stuff go wild rather than thinking we've got a manicure at all is really important. Even if it's only a corner of your garden or window box or something, it's it's amazing how doing that will make a huge difference. Um, nature doesn't need an awful lot of space <laughs> to make a big difference. Uh, it, it's revealing, isn't it, that um, even now British amongst British bee populations – they are doing better in our big cities than in our countryside. Really, that tells you everything about our agricultural policy. So London is like almost like a nature reserve for bees compared to some parts of East Anglia, say. Um, it's pretty shocking. Is go, that
0: because there are more people in the cities, and the people are doing stuff to help the bees?
3: Yeah, well, it's they're doing stuff, or or just there's a greater diversity of habitats. I mean, if you go to big big sort of agricultural areas like in East Anglia or something that are, are are being managed just for agriculture, you know, actually it's like a desert effectively mm. um for, for pollinators and other species. It's a real problem. And they're highly sprayed with chemicals and so on. So there's that problem as well. I mean guess what? This extraordinary thing we've discovered over the last few years that if you put pesticides on crops, these chemicals designed to kill uh insects guess what happens the insects die <laughs> it's really amazing and um and and people still talk about it as if they're surprised i mean it's funny how the chemical companies behind this the pesticides companies themselves will trying to say that the, their chemicals aren't harmful for bees at the same time as the whole point of them is to be harmful for insects it's quite bizarre so um there's all these kind of problems and habitat loss as well you know the loss of hedgerows and so on so um now, we've got to change that. We've clearly got to change agricultural practice and we've, we've got to restore nature back in the wider countryside. But in the meantime, it's almost sometimes quicker to do that in cities.
1: Mm-hmm. And in terms of the countryside bit, is the answer there moving towards organic farming or rewilding parts of land? How do we change that?
3: Well, I mean, it's all of the above. Um, I mean, organic farming and rewilding, or if you like, it's perhaps some of the more extremes of the, mm. the the spectrum. In one sense, I mean, they're brilliant, and I would love to see, I would love to see good chunks of the UK rewilded. Um, in that debate at the moment, people. What's funny when you talk about rewilding, people say, "Oh my goodness, but we've still got to grow food. Are you madness? How are we going to import our food?" No one's suggesting the whole country should be rewilded, but at the moment, the percentage of the UK that is Genuinely wild is pretty much zero, mm-hmm. you know, tiny, tiny little bits of it. Let's just have a debate about how much of the UK should be properly wild. In other words, humans don't do anything. We just let nature do whatever it does, except perhaps we might reintroduce a few native species first. You know, should it be 2%, 3%, 5% or should it be what it is now, which is effectively 0%? And I think most people would agree it should be higher <laughs> than what it is now. Yeah. What, what so, do you think? Well, I think it should be at least 5 if not, you know, let's we could get to fire pretty quickly. I would actually rather we get even higher than that. We could do. It's amazing what happens when humans step back. Uh, nature does this brilliant thing as it knows what to do. Uh, I mean, there's a kind of throwaway comment that others have used, which is it's amazing how uh, nature survived before humans came along. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it does it very, very well. And the astonishing thing is around the world is that when humans do step right back, uh, nature rebounds very quickly and very effectively. But what we need, um, I mean, it's a bit of a... Uh, it's a bit misleading actually to just talk about the percentages. I mean, I, I do that to provoke discussion, but of course what you really need to do is look at it from an ecological point of view. What's the kind of area you need to restore certain species? Uh, what's the connectivity between those habitats and so on? And that's kind of perhaps what matters more for functioning proper ecosystem than perhaps just uh, percentages, as it were, drawn, drawn from the air. My point is, is that I think what we need to do is restore those ecosystem functions those ecosystem processes and actually have a vision of how the uk can be a country where we've got 60 70 million people but alongside it real genuine areas of of wilderness where by which we mean we properly stand back and nature does what it wants to do and we can surprise ourselves and it's not about us predetermining the outcome that's the important thing you know, at Frenzy Earth, we've estimated that roughly you could probably cut the amount of pesticides being used in half at the moment, uh, without it affecting dramatically affecting productivity, agricultural productivity. In other words, the food that we mm-hmm. produce. In fact, it'll probably be a lot better long term because the environment would be better off, and that's what we depend on for our food. Strangely enough, um, so what we need to see is is move away from these monocultures which is what we have at the moment to a much more kind of mixed up approach in our countryside which is better for nature better for our society better for our mental and physical health and all of those kind of things and it's just a much more positive future
1: and if you could leave everybody with one takeaway from this discussion talking about biodiversity what would you want them to know
3: well everyone can do something you know as I said if you've got if you've got access to a garden or a window box or a local park you can do something but also what everyone can always do is get active and I think um, actually the only time we have ever seen big changes in society happens when people get active and and come together in movements and through organizations to really try and force the bigger picture system change that's required to bring about these kind of big changes
0: Wow, that was fascinating. That was amazing. And that's it for this week.
1: That is all we have time for. But we're going to be back next week when we're going to be talking about...
0: The history of denim.
1: Yeah, we're going to be finding out what the environmental impacts of your jeans are. So make sure that you come back and listen to that. Subscribe to make sure that you're the first in line wherever you normally get your podcasts.
0: And uh, don't forget to leave us a review. You can put a fake name on there. You could pretend to be doctor. You could give yourself like a PhD. You could be a professor if you, you know, wanted you, to. You can leave a really credible review. So give it a go. Uh, give us a review. <laughs> make it five stars. And we'll see you
1: next week. We're going to get a review from like Admiral Pimpler Pop or something really strange.
0: Admiral Pimpler Pop, give us a review, please.
1: Uh, if you want to talk to us, we are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And we've also
0: got a pop-in YouTube channel.
1: We really do. You can subscribe to that as well. Thank you so much for listening. And we will see you. Next week.
0: See you in the jeans. What? (laughs) (laughs)
1: We'll see you in the jeans. (laughs) I'm so sorry.
0: (laughs) We'll see you next week.
1: Bye.